In brightest day, in blackest night, all other podcasts tremble in fright. You sure now? <laughs> Chad. Woo. Uh, I'm Mark Marble. And this is the Lantern Cast. Episode 342. That's right. 342 out on October 31st, which means this is our Halloween episode for 2018. And if you couldn't tell by the intro... But you couldn't. And, you, and if you and if you couldn't and if you couldn't tell by the title and the album art, by the way, I made that album art. You're welcome. Uh, if you couldn't tell by all of that, well, you might want to modify it potentially now and add something else to it. But I'm just saying. But either way, go, go, go ahead, go on. Um, so we are covering Larflees, and I don't mean the. OG series, we are talking about the backups that were featured in the back of the first five issues of the Threshold series. A series we thought and we prayed we would never go back to ever, but at least it's only a couple of issues in the back, a couple of pages in the back of five issues, so at least it wasn't so horribly painful. It hurt. It hurt me so. Guys, I have these things digitally, of course, because I refuse to give DC Comics any monetary uh, compensation for such horrific crap fests that is Threshold. Um, but it, because I have them digitally, I kind of had to page through them just to get to what I was looking for. And God, it, it hurt. It hurt just seeing Threshold again. Uh Captain K. Rot, uh, I think you can call. Still, you can still call him Carrot. I think deep down, yeah. but uh, yeah, call. I, uh, no, the the, the 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 term Captain Carrot is reserved for the real <laughs> Captain Carrot. K. Rot, Rot being the operative word, really describes that character's interpretation and threshold for me. So we're gonna stick with K. Rot. <laughs> <laughs> which is K-irrelevant because we're not covering those stories. <laughs> True. But, God, it was awful. I mean, the, once you got to the Brainiac stuff, at least okay, like uh, – Okay, okay. Let's, let's not reopen old wounds. Not, oh, God. The, this shit's bad enough. We don't need to go back over that stuff. <laughs> but we told people that we weren't going to cover Threshold for a long time because we didn't want to. But we gave it to you one year for a Halloween episode, and most of the time, anytime we talk about 
threshold, we also talk about Larflees. And since they are often mentioned in the same breath, we figured why not finally give you guys Larflees since you've also been asking for this as a Halloween episode. But since it was in the backups of Threshold for five issues, and they weren't necessarily short backups, so they were a little longer than you'd expect the average backup to be in terms of page count. Uh, at least I felt so. Um, we can't do that and the entirety of the Larflees series. So this episode, what we're going to do is cover the backups only. So if you're looking for the, the Larfly series proper, this is not where you're going to get that coverage. If you're trying to wait until Halloween 2019 to get that stuff, we're not promising anything. Was, is it possible? Sure, anything's possible. But we're not going to promise you a thing when it comes to covering stuff we don't want to cover. <laughs> put, put, put things in perspective. It was three years ago we did, we did Threshold. As shocking as it is, it's been three years since we did that. Use that as a proper time frame for maybe when we'll do Larflees. <laughs> <laughs> but if we wanted to do Larflees at some point in the future... We couldn't do it without first covering these five backup stories. So we have to give that to you tonight. Well, we don't have to. This is this, this is Chad's brain child, so let's be honest. I wasn't gonna fight him on it, but the only thing the only thing that made it that made it uh a little more uh tenable. Palatable. Uh yeah, tenable works too, is the fact that is the fact that number one, it was only five issues of Threshold, not all of it, and the fact that again they were only backup stories, so it's not like we had it's not like we had that many pages. And then once I re once I reread this crap last night, it was like wow, this story was so so unimportant, and so the beats in the story are so minor. It's like it, it it's not unlike Threshold, in which Threshold you just wanted to bang your head against the wall at some point because trying to I mean, it wasn't as bad when I reread it either, but it was just not a very easy story to, to, to care about, let alone follow. This Larfleet stuff is is really easy to follow. You don't care all that much, but it's really easy to follow what's going on. But even if you don't buy the ending, which is really weird, but at least, at least you know, connecting the dots is pretty easy because it's only like about six dots to connect to this thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did did we reread this stuff in in preparation for tonight? Of course. Did we make notes? I didn't. <laughs> so so uh, no, no. the amount of effort put into the research is minimal at best because you know, as listeners, as well as we do, that when we cover stuff we don't like, it's always entertaining because why put in a ton of effort into it? That always makes it funnier when you're less than enthusiastic about the material. So even if we're not covering something we like, if we're going into it knowing we're not going to like it, then it always ends up being an entertaining episode for you guys, at least according to the feedback we get when we do stuff we loathe. So <laughs> I guess uh, without further ado. <laughs> uh, I, I think we can have more doing. <laughs> I, I know Ch Ch Chad's, not feeling that, Chad's not feeling that great, whether that's a coincidence or not. I don't know. But so we, 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 we won't dilly-dally. Dilly dilly, we won't dilly dally too much in this because if let's see, let's see if we can do like an over and under like twenty second wrap up for these issues. <laughs> okay, maybe a minute, maybe like a minute. Uh, 
this issue actually pretty much I might be – once I get past the uh, creative team, a minute might be fair on this. I should almost time this. All right, so this is part one of five. Uh, Nine-tenths of the law, Keith Giffen, writer, Scott Collins, artist, uh, John Calise, colorist, Dave Sharp. Hey, Dave Sharp, letterer. Kate Stewart, assistant editor. Joey Cavalieri, editor. And Laura Flees, created by Jeff Johns, Ethan Van Skyver, and Yvonne Race, Hayes, Heis, Heis, Hoos. Um, so we begin on the Kara in the Vegas system. And Laura Flees is overseeing his this... Uh, not Kilgrave, but Stargrave, correct? <laughs> mm-hmm. This, this, this space butler guy that he captured from somewhere, and he's forcing him to basically, because the Guardians have the Book of Oa, which of course isn't just about the Guardians, but he doesn't care, that he's basically forcing uh, Kilgrave here to begin writing a Book of Lorflees. And of course, uh, Lorflees starts telling a story, which could have actually been somewhat interesting if we actually got some serious insights into the the background of Larflees. Uh we get a little bit, uh, but most of the stuff we most of the stuff we already know about how our you know Larflees was a well. At least actually, let me let me amend that. I don't remember if at this point we knew all this. I just know because I, I might be confusing this with the actual series. But but Larflees definitely you know we know he was a slave, and I do, I, the interaction with the Manhunters were kind of cool in that one panel. That made me kind of wonder that that was a story there. But basically, it's a really a, a very short. Short and, and non-sweet dictation about that he that he gives to Kilgrave, and we you know including in this little description we see how Larfleet gets the yellow ba- the orange battery and how he makes the deal with the Guardians that they're going to let him keep it so as long as he, he stays in the Vegas system, yada yada. And Larfleet wraps all this up with this was a very happy time for Larfleet. Larfleet now had a whole star system that was all his, all Larfleet's, and Larfleet lived happily ever after. So pretty much it. <laughs> that's pretty much the entire the entire book of uh, Larfleys there, but Kilgrave kind of mocks him. Kilgrave is extremely sarcastic. It's kind of it's kind of hard to like Kilgrave as a character, despite the fact that he's he's working off of Larfleys. Just because have we just defaulted to calling him Kilgrave? Oh, I did Kilgrave. I knew that was going to happen. Stargrave. <laughs> Kilgrave is a much more likable character than Stargrave. Stargrave is really sarcastic, and he's kind of it, it's kind of hard to know who's a bigger jerk in this but uh while they're having their conversation all of a sudden lorfleece's Lorf ring starts going off and he actually points out that you know he more or less he has it set to like pick up on keywords basically hit the keyword being him <laughs> if anybody's <laughs> if anybody's talking about him if, any, if there's any news about him and this news report comes across about a fair-skinned humanoid basically orange lantern and that freaks the lorfleece out because of course he's the only orange lantern so you know he leaps he leaps into combat uh, to go check this out. I like the fact that the, you have an asterisk which just signifies being speechless with rage. Though I don't like the fact that they changed the insignia on his ring to be basically an asterisk. In, yeah. kind of, they change they change the inner circle of the Larflees of the Orange Lantern symbol to do that. So he flies off, and it's like uh, now we hear like, hmm, how angry was he that he left? That he left you behind. About as angry as we hoped. And uh, Stargrave is is now always surprised. Uh, so meanwhile, in, in you know, Lorfleet basically is is coming back. At this, he go went to investigate the news report. He comes back to Okara, and basically at this moment, his eyes are glowing orange because he finds out that pretty much every single thing that all his treasure is gone. I, I've been robbed. <laughs> oh, good times. 
Oh, let's talk about a positive uh, first, only because I, uh, I I enjoy it because uh, of, of a certain thing, because of the type of story being told. This is a comedy story. Now, uh, we all know that I like Scott Collins. Uh, Mark, I don't know. How do you feel about Scott Collins, Are generally speaking? I'm pretty neutral. I think it depends on the story. Uh, and sometimes with Scott, it does depend on the story, because you have this style that you see here. Uh, in Scott's uh, art, um, which is, I would some would say, his more recognizable style. You get this style like in the Solomon Grundy series and, and so on and so forth. However, then there's another type of Scott Collins work, which you see in, like, let's say, The Flash, when he was doing some issues of The Flash for a while. Um, a more stylized, sweepy art. This is his more cartoony art. It works for the story because this is a more comedic story. We'll get to whether or not <laughs> it should be a comedic story in the first place a bit later. But for the type of story that's being told, Scott Collins' art works great. I do like that it looks somehow like Scott has found a happy medium between the OG Larflees that I love seeing, which was in Agent Orange where he clearly had like a more dog-like snout, and then the Larflees we got shortly thereafter where it was like he had a flat face almost with tusks coming out of the side instead, uh, which we got during most of, I guess, the rest of Blackest Night and Into Brightest Day. Um, but it seems like he has a happy medium between those two. The snout is back, but it's less pronounced. So it's it's like he's made a, a, a good effort on that. Um, so I, I do like that. I like uh, the how Scott has some fun here. You can see on this first uh, – on the page where you have uh, him, you know, the, the book open and Stargrave writing, you see like a dead guardian in there. Um, some fuzzy dice, but then you also have that looks like Metron's chair, right? Uh, where in particular am I looking? Uh, right next, uh, right underneath Larfleeze to the right. There's a like a gauntlet or something sitting on top of it. Yeah, but which panel? No, the the second page, the splash page of okay. him writing in the. I thought when you meant writing the book, I thought you meant like seriously writing the book. Yeah, that does it does look like Metron's Metron's chair. Yeah, and it almost looks like uh, it almost looks like one version of uh, Superman's ship that came to Earth, like in the original Superman movie. Yeah, that crystal. If yeah. you look to the left of Metron's chair, underneath uh, Larfleeze, uh, to the left of his little stand, you can see an S shield, yep, Superman's S shield, almost like a trident, of, a trident of something, or a, uh, a if tuning you, fork, or a tuning fork. If you look right next to Larfleeze, like in that thing, you can see Mjolnir, and it looks like a Magneto's helmet. Yeah, that is true. Uh, and above all that, you can see the TARDIS from Doctor Who next to the big coin. And speaking of the big coin... Yeah, he's on uh, it! <laughs> he's, <laughs> 2012! Or is it 2412? It's hard to see. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, but... If you see a big coin, you automatically think of Batman's Batcave. So when you think of the Batcave, what else do you think of? The giant T-Rex. So if you're thinking of a giant coin, you're already thinking Batcave. We might as well throw in a giant dinosaur. So there's a Triceratops right next to it. Um, and another thing which I thought was very interesting, and I'm not sure. I'm going to have to look it up maybe and clarify. 
Do you were did you watch a lot of the uh, JLI or Justice League and Justice League Unlimited cartoon? On uh, I wouldn't say a lot. I watched some of it. Do you remember the episode where uh, like Gorilla Grodd and Black Manta and all these folks were trying to get a Viking ship out of the ice because it was said to like legend said it had uh, a, a Viking prince or something uh, with some uh, he was granted immortality by the gods or something and he couldn't die unless he could die a noble warrior's death or something like that and he got frozen in ice yeah not really okay. This looks like that ship, and I know that um, DC, uh, especially when they were doing those cartoons, basically everything was a, a reference to something from the comic books. So I'm going to – DC Comics, Viking Prince. Um, okay, yes. So the Viking Prince, yes, he is something from the DC Comics. Uh Fictional Viking hero appearing in comic books published by DC. The character first appeared in Brave and the Bold number one in 55 and was created by Robert Kaniger and drawn by Joe Kubert, which is uh, interesting because he is uh, – those two creators are the ones who created Rackman. Um, he was one of three historical fiction characters to premiere in the first issues. So, yes – this is the that, that is a reference to the Viking Prince from DC Comics. That's the Viking Prince's ship. So I just wanted to bring up some of those Easter eggs that I found because I thought some of them were pretty interesting. I'm pretty sure I recognize this uh, robot thing with the red wings on its chest in the bottom right of the page, but I don't know what it's from exactly. That has to be a reference to something. I just can't place it at the moment but yeah so the art is a positive for me uh how do you feel about all the art throughout this i'm still not thrilled necessarily with this interpretation of laura fleas but but over but overall it's 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 not bad i i do like the color too i like laura Flea's snaps off the page he really pops with the art with with the orange so that's a plus for sure. Um, uh, as, as for Larfleet, and, and this is something I, I will come back to because this is this is a story that gets progressively more and more ridiculous. I'm going to say now and for the record, in case anybody's listening, this is one of their first episodes of this show and doesn't know. I don't like the idea of Larfleet being a comedic character. Uh, and, and written as a punchline. Now, can you use him in a comedic way? Sure. And Jeff Johns, if you happen to be listening, I understand that you yourself wrote him that way during things like Blackest Night and you're, you're his creator. So I understand your intent behind this character was not to solely make him a 100% all the time serious character. That being said, you can't have created him to be nothing but a punchline. Because that Agent Orange story, I mean, I say this every time I bring up Larflees. That Agent Orange story, when uh, – who was it? Uh, was it Gretty? Was that who it was? Who who wandered into the Vegas system and got killed and their body was sent back and scarred? Uh, I don't – I'm not I'm not quite sure. I can't remember the specific lantern, but guys, there's a lantern that the, – the, the Vegas system was off limits 
right before Blackest Night, someone want, one of the lanterns got in, went into the Vega system. Then his body was later recovered, brought back to the Guardians. And when the Guardians or somebody was like either scanning or touching the body, they found that orange symbol on him. They touched it or did something, and it projected an image of Larflees. And in that moment, the Guardians ascent. I mean, this is obviously not verbatim, but essentially the reaction was of the Guardians was, oh, shit, somebody went to the Vegas system and woke up Larflees. We're all screwed. What do we do now? Because <laughs> they also in that story, they talk about uh, Larflees talks about how, uh, hey, you guys have been sh- uh, giving away your power for millennia now. I have been the only one with this power hoarding it for centuries. You know, so this is this is a this is an ancient being because we do establish that several times in Larfleys uh, past writings. He's an ancient being who once stole parallax from the Guardians, now wields the power of an entire core within himself, and has enough power that they he he was able to make a deal with the Guardians to have a sector to himself. So he was a he was a powerhouse and a threat. So to make him such a comedic character, nothing but a punchline, just it just irritates me. I agree. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I don't. I, I I'm not a writer, uh, you know, a paid and 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 published writer that can. I, I like to write creatively myself for fun, but nothing in my have has been officially published. And paid for copyrighted, so I can't really come at it at this stance. I it's got to be difficult to find that perfect balance for between you know giving a character some comedic value, but also making him an intense threat. And I just don't think anybody's walked that line very well since Jeff Johns. And this is not a Jeff Johns apologist sort of thing. Like I'm happy for anybody to come in and pick up this torch and run with it and do it very well, but. It just feels like nobody's found that right balance. Yeah, he's not been a character that's been treated particularly well since, uh, certainly since uh, Blackest Night, I would say, overall. Yeah. All right. Um, I guess now the story itself. Larflees has his stuff stolen. That's it. That's the entire part, the entire plot of this story, wherein we get five issues worth of a backup, enough so that they DC deemed it worthy to have its own series, is Larfleeze, the guy who hoards and keeps all of his stuff, who's greedy, has his stuff stolen and tries to get it back. <laughs> what? <laughs> Could be worse. I, I mean, I guess. But I like how the, the title is called Nine-Tenths of the Law, because possession is nine-tenths of the law. <laughs> so that that's clever. Uh, Keith Giffen, of course, is a famous writer. He's probably one of DC's top-tier writers. Uh, not not recently, of course, but in in DC in DC history overall, he's he's one of the big names at DC. So at this point, I'm pretty sure he just has his pick of. Oh, Keith, you want to do a story for us? Great. What's your idea? Okay, that sounds relatively doable. Let's just, you know, let's keep Keith happy. So, uh, you know, and you team up with someone like Scott Collins. It's just, it's going to, it's at the very least what you, what you see is going to be fun. So Keith lately, though, I feel has been sort of hit or miss. I don't like saying that about someone like Keith Giffen, but 
It's it's true. <laughs> yeah. All right, I guess on to two then. You sound very unenthused. I didn't expect a lot of enthusiasm in the first place. But. We spent way too much time on issue one than I would have ever expected. Let's 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 start let's start moving along because we don't want to be here. We honestly do not want to be here for an, an hour going over these five issues. Let's be honest. All right, so we get back to Okara in issue two. Uh, Larflees is uh, yet again on some different type of orange construct throne, holding Stargrave over a flame to kind of threaten him to figure out what happened uh someone came in wearing masks their voices were a bit distorted and uh, we don't know what to do uh i don't know who it was i was unconscious um shall we call the authorities uh, who has more authority than larflees who's better equipped to do uh, authority things than larflees <laughs> <laughs> to which star stargrave responds do you have any you have no idea what uh, authorities do do you <laughs> so of course uh he uh, puts Stargrave in a bubble and rides him uh, across into uh, the. Oh, it doesn't really matter what this place is called. Um, he goes the, the to Tenebrian Dominion. Yeah, he goes to meet up with the Star Rovers. The Star Rovers, you'll remember from the, at the very least the New Guardians annual that uh, started off the whole threshold thing. Oh, you blocked that out too. Great. <laughs> Then we don't care. <laughs> Star Rovers, Ravager, it doesn't matter what they're called. So he meets up with the Star Rovers to try and get a bead on what's happened with his stuff. Um, they talk about having a fee that needs to be met. Of course, Larflees doesn't want to pay anybody anything, so there's an argument that ensues there. All of a sudden, a bunch of the constructs of uh, Larflees' Orange Lantern Corps come crashing through the wall. Big fight ensues. Uh, and they dissipate uh, suddenly, and Larflees is grabbed by one of the Star Rovers, gets thrown across the room. He's about ready to fight again. And Stargrave interrupts, says, no need for this. You win. The Star Rovers will help us find your uh, your treasure free of charge. And Larflees is like, all right, no charge. Great. So they head off to about six or seven awkward moments later <laughs> in their in Star Rovers ship. More disagreement and stuff is continuing. And uh, Star, this is where Stargrave chooses to bring uh, this up. He says, your goods were taken how long ago? Three, four hours? How long ago did you charge your ring? Larfley says, right before they started working on the book, he says, all right, well, then add another oh, two hours, and your ring has approximately 18 hours before it runs out of power. Looks like you didn't think of that. Star, uh, Larfley goes completely blank, his mouth hanging open. Stargrave takes this moment to leave everybody into another room while Larflees cries out in terror. No! And next issue. I'm not sure if I'm buying it about that whole ring thing, considering, considering all the charge that he's had over those, all those centuries. And, 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 the, and, and the percentage that his ring is usually charged up to, I don't necessarily... I don't think it was ever from ever established that Lord Fleece needs to charge his ring every twenty four hours. And at this and at this point, haven't we well established that every lantern's ring works like a gas tank at this point? The twenty four hour thing is no longer in effect. I thought I thought that's something that's been well established now. I don't know how established it was back then. It, 
but for the R, but but we know, but we know it certainly wasn't true for all the cores. It certainly was nothing, nothing that I ever remember that indicated that the Red Lanterns needed to recharge once a day. We know the Blues absolutely did not. There's no reason to think the Indigos needed to. Of course, the Indigos always had their staff with them to begin with. But the point is, uh, so I don't. I personally do not remember anything ever indicating that Lord Fleas had to recharge his battery. Period. Let alone every once every 24 hours. And we also we do know, you know, what what an incredible percentage of well, was wasn't he like a, like like 7200 percent or something one time a capacity of of or, of. of Something like that. So it's like I don't, I don't, I find it very difficult to believe that under any circumstances, that his ring is going to be running out of. Even even if he did reach, especially if he just recharged his ring, there's no reason to believe that he has to recharge it every 24 hours. Yeah. So I, I caught. That's one of the things I picked up on too. It's like, ah, eh, that sounds like a lot of crap. Yeah. This in this. Uh, we don't really care about the Star Rovers. You shouldn't either. They weren't really that big of a deal. But uh, the other, I guess, quote-unquote important concept here is that it looks like Larfleeze's uh, constructs are out of control. I hesitate to say constructs. I'll just say Orange Lantern Core. So whenever, avatars. Yeah, av- yeah, avatars. Whenever they show up and they're attacking Larfleeze and the others, it just seems, uh, it seems like we've lost control. Knowing what happens... And uh, some of the story that in in the Lorfleece proper series, it, this this will be a constant theme going forward. It's like they only have like a limit of three or four things they can pick from if they want to do a Lorfleece story. <laughs> what if he lost control of his <laughs> of, of his uh, avatars? Oh, we've done that before. What if they came back to, to life? <laughs> Mommy, good grief! So. Um, but yeah, that's that's where we are with all that. Again, the art continues to be Scott Collins. I don't see Scott Collins doing anything wrong here. I, he's matching the tone. As I said before, he's matching the tone of the story that's being told. Uh, anything in particular I see wrong? Not necessarily. Um, but I'll I'll just say I don't like I don't like Stargrave. Every time I see him, I don't like the way he looks. I understand that that's his design and not Scott Collins' art. But I just every time I see him, I just feel like, well, that's shitty looking. But again, that's just the character's design, I guess. Anything else? No. All right. Issue three. Uh, pulling that up now. Larfley's in Awkward Alliances. He is still with the Star Rovers. And they are awaiting in a bar. For another contact. Sound familiar? Uh, as they do so, two other members of the Star Rovers are hanging back, trying not to get in a fight with Larflees. Uh, suddenly, uh, their, their contact... Uh, P- P- Peter Quill. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> suddenly, their contact shows up. Uh, Branks Rancor, who walks in with a, a woman on his arm, uh, scantily clad. You know, she's not going to have a whole lot of uh, agency in the story, not because she's a woman or because she's scantily clad, but just because the way they portray her right away, you can t- clearly tell this is just uh, some woman he keeps around for the fun of it. Uh, so. Jack T. Chance Jr. Yeah, there you go. She immediately, of course, uh, he's, he says he's got business to take care of. Uh, she immediately starts flirting <laughs> with uh, one of the star rovers over by the bar uh, while, uh, while Branks starts talking to uh, Homer 
of the Star Rovers. They trade insults, shake hands, update uh, each other on what's going on. Basically, this guy is kind of like a bloodhound. He can uh, sense the essence of things and track them. Uh, of course, he also says he has his own fee. Then he and Larflees get in a big fight, uh, a big knockdown dragout fight. Larflees tries to use his ring. It doesn't work. Uh, this is when the Legion, L dot E dot, you know, the acronym Legion, uh, some, uh, shows up in the form of a bunch of drones to track down Branks, uh, who they've been trying to, him and his girl have been trying to evade them for a while, so they show up here. So the, a bigger fight ensues. And then if this, this wasn't enough trouble, then here come the Orange Lantern avatars to attack things. And next issue, why can't it be good? Because the story sucks. <laughs> That's why it can't be good. Oh, God, let me open this issue because I'm going to get this one. Um, I know I chose it, so I'm not bitching. It's just I would have preferred not to cover any of these issues. Uh, so are we, we're not talking about this, are we, or do you want to say anything about it? Uh, the only thing I'll add here is the fact that clearly, uh, a, a lot of my focus is going to be on the art because again, I like Scott Collins. Uh, he's having fun here because he gets to design a lot of different new aliens costumes and stuff like that. So you can tell how much fun artistically Scott is having with the amount of sort of, I guess, rope he's being given, uh, because, other than like Larflees, it's not like the Star Rovers and every everybody else are super established characters. So he can ha- take some agency with these and, and do whatever he wants. But that's all I was gonna say. Yeah, I hear you. All right. Oh God. All right. So this is part four. Let's see. A step in the right, wrong direction. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like the bar though with the the brimming trough. Yeah. That, that's 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 kind of cute at least. So we so we pick up where we left off, where the the Star Rovers and Lore Fleas in Rancor. They, they like naming characters Rancor. Don't they? <laughs> Spelled differently, but uh, so they're they're. You know they're they're kind of like taking on they're taking on the the avatars and then Lorfleeze himself has to has to take on his one of the one of the like an almost like a elephant squid like avatar and it's like cease and desist I own you start acting like possessions and you know Stargrave is like you'll get us all killed you know is that is that's what you're gonna do and it's like oh, and I suppose you have a better idea than getting us all killed yes actually I do. Just will them back into your ring. And it's like, uh, and Lord Flea accurately points out that he never really, certainly consciously willed them out of his ring. But he pretty much listens to Killgrave, Stargrave, Grave. <laughs> and he puts, and with, with, a, with a big exclamation of mine, all the constructs disappear. I do like the way he's, he's just like, almost like choking the life out of, uh, Stargrave there. Uh, then this chick who just this chick star rover who really is kind of annoying. Um, she just she she blasts Larflees and uh, which makes no I guess it makes a little bit of sense to her. But Larflees wants to take her out and 
Stargrave kind of said, no, she was aiming for me. She's not a very good shot. And and Lorflees tends to buy that. And they pretty much, uh, you know, they they pretty, you know, they they come they come to some kind of agreement with uh, with Rancor and everything. And I do like the interaction between uh, Stargrave and Lorflees when it just says uh, the fact that. Uh, just the fact that Rancor, that Rancor should just be grateful should just be grateful for it. he's being because he's able to help the great Lorflees. <laughs> how, how, how there shouldn't be any services for, you know charges for the services rendered because it's just such an honor helping Lorflees by itself. That that part I like and and Stargrave just kind of like goes when Lorflees is like rummaging through crap he kind of goes to Rancor it's like just submit a bill and you'll be paid but kind of like keep it on the down low because we got a reputation to uphold. <laughs> It's like sure, sure, I get it, and like uh, I I do like the fact that Rancor when he actually when he when he touches Lorflees he like he's he's overwhelmed by the fact that you know he as they call it the Manitou essence which is basically their ability to to sense items and somebody's attachment to items he he's just completely overwhelmed by it it's like, it's like the Manitou essence this clown's swimming in it <laughs> oh that that part was good. And and this is when you know uh, Stargrave starts getting. You know, he seemingly has. He thinks he has it all figured out. What's going on here? And it's like uh, he basically he goes to Lorflees and it's like uh, you know this is absurd. I was there when the robbery took place. Lorflees was not on the premises. And besides, does he look like he's carrying around? And and all of a sudden he says, "But you said they were wearing masks." And it's like. And Lorflees goes, but that means it, it, it could have been Lorflees, but Lorflees in disguise, but Lorflees accomplices. And Lorflees accomplices? It's like, is he really arguing the case for him being the thief, the chick says? And goes, there is comfort in that thought, though, then Lorflees' treasure would still be in Lorflees' possession. And all of a sudden we hear, you you unrepentant imbecile. It's like, uh, I should. I should have known you'd find a way to make this all about you. I won't have it. Not now, not ever again. This time it's about me. This time it's about my vengeance. And we have this orange avatar-ish vision of Sade. And all of a sudden, you know, Stargrave's like, Sade? You mean Sade, your own personal guardian? Did you tell me Sade was dead? She is dead. He's like, perhaps you should tell her that. Next issue. Buried treasure. Oh God, this 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 is nuts. Uh, I wonder. Here's my question, because I'll just spoil it. Uh, I I don't I don't see why not. You find out, of course, that then this is this at this point for the most part the star rovers are out of the picture. Do they show up in the next issue? Yeah, sure, but there's really no need for them afterwards. So then why are they here? Because they're here solely to introduce you to Rancor, who has this ability. If they serve no other purpose besides that, then clearly they're put in here to serve some sort of connection to to whatever has been happening with the threshold stuff, that Green Lantern, New Guardians annual, so on and so forth. They purposely forced Keith and Scott – to put some sort of of on the page on the panel connection to stuff happening in the threshold book that this is featured in. At that point, why even have the backup? 
Like, I don't, why, why not just tell a, a, a secondary story or something that has much more of a direct connection or it explains a different part of what's happening in this book that you're selling? Because, uh, and clearly that's what they do eventually because they give Larflees his own book and then they start doing that awful, 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 I mean, compared to, to this Larflees backup. What what was the name of the, the the other backup? Star Hawkins, wasn't it? Yeah, Star Hawkins, the Star Hawkins backup. Like, good lord, it's just I don't. I, if the point of the backup is to feature something different and and try out this new thing, which is usually what the point of a backup is, except for say in like the seventies when, like for instance, Green Lantern, uh, well, late sixties, early seventies when Green Lantern stopped being published and was featured as a backup. Uh, in the flash, uh, you know, things like that is to, to hold the copyright and all this other stuff. But other than something like that, backups are usually trials. So why would you, I mean, uh, why would you try and attach it to something so ancillary like this? It just, it makes no sense to me. You could have had him like Stargrave himself go, okay, well, I've heard of this guy named Rancor. Why are the, why are the Star Rovers even here? They were pushing for that big Star Rover series. <laughs> oh, good times. Yeah, it just, it, it doesn't make much sense. But at the same time, one cool thing I'll say about this is how star it's clear that stargrave i mean it's not like glarflees is a super complicated person but it's 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 interesting how much stargrave gets larflees does he like him no but does he understand him and know how to work around him yeah that's that's cool and i like how he gets star uh, gets larflees enough to be like uh, you know, your your orange lanterns are, are not about to kill me they're stealing me from you which then, of course, pisses Larflees off enough for him to get all mine and just, you know, super Hulk out with his power and absorb everything back into himself. So that's cool. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. something's got something's got to be cool. <laughs> all right, next yeah. and last. <laughs> that, that's the best part. That, that's the key word, last. Um all right, part five, lost and found. So we pick up literally where we left off. And, and, and just to prove, just to like rub the salt in the wound in the chat's point, we, we have a whole list on the left-hand side of the entire cast pretty much at this point of unnecessary characters, including Main Squeeze, who is the hot pink chick. Not to be confused with uh, Carol Sorensen, who was, the, who was the blonde who took the cheap shot at Larfleet. And just to prove even further that she clearly has her none of her own agency, everybody else gets a sort of description. Main squeeze. We'll get back to you on this one. Yeah, they're trying to be funny, and we should point out the Star Rovers have like the worst knockoff, like Captain America meets Robin logo of all time. Yeah, that is like horrible. I almost mentioned it uh, the, the last uh, your last issue. All right, so pretty much this is kind of funny because more or less everybody's just sitting around like watching this, like they're kind of like entertained by this, but. It's, but the this pseudo avatar of Sade is taking on Lorflees, this make, <coughs> which makes the point of saying, "Didn't think I'd let you kill, get away with killing me, did you? Just, you know, let you just like walk away free and clear." And Lorflees accurately points out, "I didn't kill you. <laughs> I'm not the one who killed you. I thought about it. I didn't kill you." 
and the third, you know, you mentioned, which was accurate, that towards the end of the Third Army storyline, that's when, uh, that's when, uh, Say bought the farm, supposedly. But I, but what we find out in this, in this issue is somehow Sade, because she was so convinced that Lord Fleas was actually going to kill her, that basically she came up with this a, a elaborate plan as a more or less to seek revenge if that ever happened. So she she has like this post hypnotic suggestion in Lord Fleas that if that were to ever happen, that basically. Uh, he like he he unbeknownst to him he would kind of like come in he would actually steal all his stuff he would be completely unaware that he stole all his stuff uh that he would and, and I like the that's pretty much the gist of most of this issue just the fact that the fact that you know that say that say was so desperate to and she hated being with Lorfleas as much as she did uh, just based on the agreement, of course, they had made with Lorfleas way back in the day, uh, that so Lorfleas could have a guardian of his own. That you know she, you know she goes to this whole elaborate scheme of making sure that you know Lorfleas not only would would steal all his own stuff, but he would. Uh, I had you destroy it, all of it. Your power battery too, gone forever. How do you like me now? <laughs> and Lorfleas freaks out and. Stargrave is like, uh, oh, wonderful! You're back with us. Because for a moment, it's, it's kind of like the, it's kind of like they were like he he went in he he went like inside himself almost literally at this point because he's still sitting there. Everybody's watching him, but we see what he sees, and he's sitting back on the book of Orfleas, and all all the crap that was there that was stolen is there. Everything's all orange. So that whole conversation where where Sage was twirling her mustache, revealing her master plan, that was all like kind of in Lorfleas was kind of inside himself. So when he comes back, you know, Lorfleet, uh, St- Stargrave is like, you know, the others, well, they took full advantage of your comatose state, made themselves scarce, and I can't, you know, can't say I blame them. I suppose you were wondering why he stayed, and it's like, uh, <laughs> and Lorfleet doesn't care. He just, he, he's just holding on to him, and he's crying. It's like, it's gone, it's all, it's gone, man, it's gone. And then Stargrave's like, then again, perhaps not. And then we get we get the shocking the double shocking announcement that a new feature begins. Why? Because next month sees the launch of Lorfleas' very own monthly comic. No one is more surprised than us. <laughs> Which is Fantastic. said by the creators and both us, myself and Mark. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, the fans might have been surprised more than than they were. So this plot <laughs> by Sade is so ridiculous <laughs> because okay it, it, look given where we've seen said uh in the past her her um because of uh her agreement with larflees during blackest night to serve him if he helped them overcome necron and so on and so forth you know and then the the place we see her after that she seems so down and out larflees is literally riding on top of her head you know all of this stuff I understand Sade, especially being a guardian. She just because she's now serving Larflees doesn't mean she's not powerful. I can see her doing something like this, but holy crap, does she seem almost like Appa Ali Opsa evil <laughs> about it? So it's especially considering uh, what Mark uh, you're going to talk about. Sade is dead slash alive. Yeah, this is part of this is part of the the issue with this, that 
Now, to be fair, Threshold number 5 uh, did come out brief- shortly before Green Lantern 20 came out in 2013. But not by a whole hell of a lot. Uh, May 8th, this issue, Threshold number 5, the, the end of the Lord Flea's backup stories, came out on May 8th. And Green Lantern 20, the end of the Jeff Johns era, came out on May 22nd. So we're basically talking two weeks difference. So if for those who do remember, because, mind you, it made no friggin' sense, among other things, as, as entertaining as that issue was and as cool as it was, there were a bunch of things that happened in Green Lantern 20 that didn't make a lot of sense. How, you know, Hal could come back from being a Black Lantern just by getting a Green Lantern back on his, on his finger, and where the hell... One, but one of the things that made no friggin' sense was last time I think we saw Sage was when she she was fighting she was fighting Kyle wasn't she? Was I think so. Yeah, no, I think yeah, it was Kyle. So, so she was supposed to be dead, and yet I guess somehow, probably because at all, I guess because Sinestro was feeling uh, benevolent, which is unsinestro like, that he had Lorfleas bring in like in a sack, Sage. Who was supposed to be dead, so we had no, ex- so we never got an explanation for, and we still haven't gotten an explanation for why Sade wasn't dead to begin with. But Lorfleece himself brings the physical body of Sade uh, to reunite her with Ganthet at the end, in at the end of Green Lantern twenty. So the mere fact that you know Lorfleece himself, based on the way things, there sh- he should know that she's not dead because he still has her, obviously, because he gets her to bring, you know. To Ganthet. So this whole idea of, of her being dead and all—I mean, it—it's kind of—it's kind of weird. It's, uh, if they hadn't thrown in that line about you died, you know, the th- you know, you died, you know, in, by the, in, you know, in the by the third army or whatever, then you could have just said, you know, the fact that Lord Fleas was insisting that she wasn't dead. Well, technically, he was accurate. But because they throw that in, that may, that starts that again raises the fact that again these two stories are basically being released around the same time, and they're, they're definitely one hand is not washing the other, and it also kind of is really. I mean, I guess the revenge plot. I guess if she if she had already been corrupted enough by the art by Avarice to put this to put this in Larfleet's head, that even if she is. Somehow, if she's dead, or maybe if just the fact that if she were to disappear on any level from that, maybe that would be the trigger to get that you know post-hypnotic subge- suggestion ro- uh, in full effect. But it's it's kind of it's kind of weird uh, about that, just considering how close these stories came out. Yeah. Um. So her plot is weird. She even she even apparently goes to the detail of this. This is why that when Larfleys goes to check out this news report that his ring alerts yes, him to. Yes, that's another. It, it's it's fake. It, there's no such sector or area of space or whatever because she even went to that point to plant that phony report to get him to like it, what <laughs> what. It's just it's just so weird. And another another kind of loose thread to uh, just uh, not necessarily pull at and explain, but more just point out so you guys can find it on your own if you want. Um, Stargrave himself. Do you know where this guy's even from? I don't know. <laughs> See, not, not not at this point. I don't. I don't. I'm. I forget if they went how if they went back into detail and filled in the gaps in the Laura Fleece series. But at this point, no, I didn't know who the hell he was. He actually, so he shows up, 
in the weirdest place. Well, not weird considering it's a book about space, but he shows up in Rebels. And, and by Rebels, guys, I mean the, the, the acronym Rebels, the series Rebels from DC, uh, which I've never read except for the issues, of course, that took place during Blackest Night. But Dan, Dan Kursky really liked and read uh, Rebels, uh, a big champion of that series, as a matter of fact. I tried to get my hands on the issues that apparently Stargrave was introduced in, but I couldn't get them in time, so I couldn't do enough research there. I didn't really want to, so I didn't try super hard, but I wasn't able to get them in time to uh, figure it out. But evidently, 17, 18, 19, and 20 of the Rebels series have uh, Stargrave in them. So in terms when he mentions at the beginning like his former bosses or something, I'm assuming that's where that all takes place. Again, I, I haven't read it, so I can't be 100% certain, but just based on timing, publishing dates, so on and so forth, that's where I'm assuming he – uh, he's referring to uh, Viral Dox's team at Rebels. I, 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 I guess I don't know. Um, and pre-Crisis, he was a he was a legion of superhero bad guy. It looks like. Yeah. So, so that's there. There you go. That's that's what you got. Uh, I, do with that what you will. But it, it, I just thought it was interesting because we're basically told here that suddenly Larflees has this new this new servant. Uh, we act the, the first page of the first time we see him. It's like him and him and Larflees have some sort of a history already, but we're not really given anything, any information about it. it we just, just we're just thrown into the mix with this new character. So I just thought I'd bring it up. You can find Stargrave in other places if you care to find it. Uh, I will be getting the Rebel series at some point and reading it because Dan recommended it so highly and just because. I saw that Stargrave appeared in there. I was like, that, that's its going to sound bad, but I kind of forgot Rebels was a series. <laughs> and, and then once I saw that Stargrave appeared in it, all, that mem- all those memories of how much Dan championed it came flooding back to me. And I, I had initially planned to, oh, one day I'll actually read it then and, and, and give it a chance and see how good it is. Um, but uh, I, I just totally forgot it was a thing. So... If I ever happen to, whenever I do uh, read those issues, I'll give some sort of an update in some episode, probably five minutes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if you're curious on who this guy is, what he is, that's where you're going to find it. Um, but overall, man, this story, it's just, I want to give the plot and, like, Sade's whole plan and, and the execution of all this some some shit but at the same time the zaniness of the plot and 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 uh, all of its motives behind it aren't necessary aren't really like (laughs) out of left field with the tone of the rest of the story the entire thing is nuts so you would expect the the plot and the backstory to be nuts (laughs) yeah uh gretty gretty was killed but gretty was killed when the when the green lanterns uh Gretty was killed when the Green Lanterns went to investigate Okara. Stell was the one who was ambushed. Oh, okay. So Stell didn't die. He was just like dismantled. He was, he was and seriously stuff. damaged, and when he came back to Oa, that's when the uh, that's when the hologram or whatever of of, of Lorfleece came out. So Gretty yeah. Gretty got killed when uh, when the Green Lanterns and everybody else went to go investigate what was what was what was going on. That's when that's when Gretty got absorbed. 
All of this, of course, set off by Scar, who, you know, I don't know. She, I think she told Stell to go into the sector or something like that. It was, it was some, it was something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that. That was the story where I, I guess it was relatively recently speaking that uh, Scar was sort of coming onto the scene as a, a bad guy on her own because as when, when the Guardians went with the core and Hal, because Hal was also holding the blue ring at the same time um when they went with the guardian when the with the green lantern corps into vega scar said she wasn't feeling well and stayed behind to do some shenanigans which of course led into the stuff into blackest night and green lantern 43 and all that stuff so <clears throat> i hear but, you uh, but uh, anything else you want to say about this? I mean, I, I know we're not enthusiastic about the topic. Uh, we're we're just covering it, you guys, because you seem you seem to like the idea of us covering something horrendous for Halloween. Uh, and it seems like a trick or treat. We're clearly choosing trick because it's definitely not a treat. Uh, but I mean, you know, this is something that is in the lore, and for some godforsaken reason, these five backups were enough for not even five because they made the announcement in five. So really, I, I would assume the decision was made relatively soon after maybe like issue three. I must, I actually always assume the decision was already made to start with. I think, that, oh. I think that I think it was a foregone conclusion that they were, that they were doing a, I forget now if, if I forget if the rumors had been out there before the backup started, but I would bet I don't think, I don't think it was due to popular demand because of the backup stories. I think they already knew they were they were doing it. Um. I'll admit, I'll admit here and now, everything I know about the Larflees series proper is secondhand. I have not read any issue of the Larflees main series. So, but for some reason, this stuff. Uh, I mean, even if it was, even if it was already a decision. To do the Larflees ongoing before even the first issue of this backup came out, that still means that they read this stuff and said, "Yeah, we're going to keep going with that project." <laughs> Not only that, this this didn't just warrant um, Larflees getting his own series. He didn't. It, you would expect based on this, you would go, "Well, that's going to last six issues tops." It lasted twelve issues. From this, what? <laughs> well, I don't. I don't think. Realistically speaking, I don't think that a, a book lasting twelve issues is that surprising. Uh, well, maybe the better way to put it is, I don't think a book only getting six issues is that surprise. You know, I, I think that's more the exception to the rule, especially when you have a relatively big name creators on it, because because you. Because you, you still had Giffen and you ended up having Dave Mateus on that book, so I think that, and we've seen and we've seen this with certainly with both of them before that they seem to be able to get a lot of things that are weird friggin' like what was it like uh, Justice League three thousand or whatever the hell it was that uh, they seem to be able to get a lot of weird ass books off the ground and depending on what it is. You know, I I'm going again. I kind of always assume they they were they were they were promised at least a at least a year on that book, which is all they got. But I kind of suspect that that was kind of a given that that when they signed up for that that they were 
they basically were told they were at least gonna they were at least gonna get a year on that. But yeah, I mean, well, Keith Giffen and Jam Demetrius are one of those comic power couples for the most part. I mean, obviously not a couple, but I mean, they they historically have written and done so much stuff together as a creative team that you say you're going to put the two of them together on something. The 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 no matter really for 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 a lot of people. Doesn't matter what the book is. If you say Giffen and Demetrius are doing a book together, a lot of people are just going to buy it just for that. So, I just found an interview. I just found an interview with Giffen and Scott Collins about about issue number one. I'm going to give it to you of of the main series. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I just I I just did. I just did a search and it's like, oh yeah, that, that's that's kind of interesting. What what does it say? Uh, let's see. I I'm trying to skim it because again, I'm always I'm always afraid that uh that you're gonna when you go to these sites, it's gonna start playing audio uh, immediately. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Why Larfleeze? You know, I think he's a blast, but what's appealing to you about the character? Colin said something different. There aren't many books out there where the main character is a lunatic. Oh, and I do like the hair. Uh, Keith Giffen, the built-in, the reverence. I mean, he's a living embodiment of greed. How can you not love that? Uh, let's see that. Asking where the story picks up, we know where it picks up. Um, let's see. Can we expect to see more of Larfleeze's history in this book, or are we just moving forward? Uh, Giffen, a good bit of both, with the focus on looking forward. Uh, Scott, how do you come on? Yeah, well, we can yeah. skip that one. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to see if there's anything super. Let's see. Is this going to feature primarily Larfleeze's adventures, or will the other cores be factoring in in a significant way? Collins, yes, of course. Wait, did Keith say no? Um, <laughs> and I'm just trying to see if there's anything else. There's not. A, there's not a lot of meat on this. But yeah. I'm no, sorry. I, I stumbled get, upon it, so it's we can we can include the link in uh, the, the on the website post. Yeah, we can, well, yeah, I can because I can get it from. Uh, but I just pasted to you because Lord knows I'm not going to remember this link probably. <laughs> it'll be in my it'll be in the history of my browser, mind you. But I mean, uh, but it's an IGN article, so that's at least something. I, well, uh, uh, that's that's going to do it, I guess, for this part of the thing. Do do you do you have anything else you want to say about this series, or, or maybe Larfleeze in particular? Because I know. You know, everybody knows you're a big fan of St. Walker and the Blue Lanterns, and it's not like you've ever held Larfleeze up as one of your potential favorites. But do you have any feelings about Larfleeze in general, maybe that you'd already held that affected somewhat how you viewed this backup or his portrayal in this backup? I do prefer Larfleeze to be more serious. So this kind of comical approach, which obviously carries over, excuse me, <clears throat> carries over into the main book. It, it, I don't know. It wasn't my it wasn't my choice of approach. I mean, there's there are some there are some memorable issues in the in the memorable maybe in quotes in the Larf, the actual Larfleet's proper book, especially related to the revolt of the Orange Lanterns, which is the first major storyline I think in that book. So there are some really there are some good issues in there and interesting issues and concepts raised. But I also would be really hard pressed to remember verbatim a lot of stuff that happens in that book. I know I had them all. It's a matter of gathering them up. So it it is realistic we will do this at some point. I just don't know how we would approach it because we would have 12 issues to cover, and they are full issues. Mm-hmm. So we probably we, – we may have to split it. Um, would, it be, would it be safe to say that 
Uh, I mean, based on these five backups and then the fact that you said you read the, 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 the Larfleet's proper series, uh, comparing the two, would it be safe to say that the change is because of Demetrius's influence? Probably. Uh, I do like I do like the proper series better than better than this mini. Now that I went back and I read it, and it's like I actually I really had completely I had completely forgotten what the main uh, crux of the uh, of the backup stories were about. Uh, I may have vaguely remembered it was about him losing his shit. No pun intended, because that's that's the important thing. And any Lorflee story, one way or the other, you know, there, there's a quote to put on the cover. It's like, <laughs> of a book. One way or another, you know, Lor- and somewhere in this story, Lorflee is going to lose his shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I completely forgot about the Sade stuff, and I kind of wish I still had. <laughs> <laughs> and I like Sade, but I, I corrupt Sade was never a plus. All right, well, is there anything else we want to talk about in this episode before we uh, close out? Well, for the rest of this episode, well, after the, should we say what's coming after the credits? Yeah, it's your thing. Let's uh, let them know what to stick around for. You put some work into it, so yeah. So what's coming after after we do the proper ending of the show? For those that are for those that are interested, certainly in, in Halloween, as in not the holiday as much as the franchise, the movie franchise that I, it will be. I think it's like about half an hour of of my ram. Of, not trying not to ramble. I, th- I think they're re- they were relatively coherent when I put them together. <laughs> Thoughts on uh, Halloween 2018? Uh, I had hoped, and it still might happen, depending at some point. But I had hoped Ryan Daly and I were going to do a we're going to do a back and forth on Halloween 2018. Once he saw it, we were going to do a <clears throat> basically a double review and our thoughts on it. But that hasn't, as of now, that hasn't really transpired. So kind of like what I did. I think I did that once before. Uh, I think I did it with one, actually Game of Thrones one time. I think I did it one of the times we were talking about doing a Game of Thrones recap, and it might have been I don't know if it was you and I or the one you, the one when you couldn't make it and Jim and I did one. But I know I did. I they basically did a, a solo recap on my own. It just never saw the light of day because you know we ended up doing a proper one. But so that's going to be coming next. So if if you're interested, you can you can you can give a listen to that. And for this ep, I think that's we have no listener feedback, so I think that's going to be it for for this part of this episode, anyway. Okay, guys, that's going to do it for this episode. We want to hear your thoughts, though. We've heard a lot of stuff about. Uh, of course, we don't like Threshold, and that seems to be something that's uh, shared universally by a lot of uh, people, uh, a lot of listeners of ours, and non-listeners. Anybody? Not a lot of people have a lot of love for Threshold, but for some reason. Larflees does have some people out there who support him, and I don't mean just the character. I mean this backup, the the, the proper series, etc. So, I mean, Mark read some of the proper series, and like he said, at some point we will be getting to it. It's just we're not going to promise when. But what is if you like Larflees? If you like this portrayal of Larflees as essentially a purely comical character, then we always love hearing from people who want to give us their differing opinions. We don't like to be caught in an opinion vacuum. So tell us why you like this portrayal of Larflees. Uh, if you read the main series and didn't like this backup or vice versa, or you liked both, tell us why. Uh, I'm curious about what the differences are between the two, actually. So uh, if you felt the, the, the series proper was regular, uh, the, the series regular was better than the backups. Tell us why. What was the tone like? Uh, and so on and so forth. So, Mark, if they want to give us those thoughts, how do they reach out? 
lanterncast at gmail.com. The email is lanterncast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. You can reach out to us there. Use hashtag GLCast to locate us on any of those. iTunes and Stitcher, whichever platform you listen to us on. Assuming you just don't click on the episode and listen to it on the on the website, which you could too. <laughs> uh, uh, leave us a positive review on whichever platform you do listen to us on. And last but not least, 708 Lantern is the voicemail. So let us know what you think. All right, guys. Um, we don't next, know. Next episode, <laughs> do next episode, we don't know, but our, our, we're taking a break, right? Um, In terms of uh, episodes actually being posted. Possible. Let's see. Yeah, based on our original discussion, right, because it's sh- as shocking as it is, we're probably going to have to start pulling together ideas, at least in segments, for the big 10th anniversary episode. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, given given the fact that it's our 10th anniversary, will we make it like a eight-hour extravaganza? No. no. Uh, but – that will take some prep, and we gave you Lara Fleas, and this episode is two days early because we're celebrating Halloween. We're not going to stick by it because maybe we'll record something in the meantime, but there are no current plans. But yeah, just, just in case, it's very likely you won't hear from us again until our 10th anniversary post. So don't be shocked if you don't see a new episode in your feed in a week or so. So just FYI, we're preparing for the 10th anniversary. And speaking of the 10th anniversary, all that contact information Mark just gave, voicemails, emails, Facebook posts, Twitter responses, doesn't matter. Send it our way because 10th anniversaries and anniversaries in general are almost always all about the listeners and our personal histories, uh, past co-hosts, people we've had on. It's all just a big love fest and getting together with the people who make this show great. So if you want to talk about how much you've either enjoyed the show or specific episodes or moments or whatever, we want to hear from you to help celebrate 10 years of the Lantern cast. Yes. So please, we would like to hear from you. It always makes it better when we have feedback for those episodes. And of course, um, I don't think, I, I don't think we have a, have really put together an itinerary as far as everybody we're going to try to reach out to to get on, but we might. I, but it's possible we may be reaching out to more than the, just the usual suspects, late, the ones we've had on lately since it's the big 10th anniversary episode. And but that's another thing, the reason why we need some time because we need to kind of like pull things together because we've been we've been fairly busy from a recording perspective, so it's we kind of need a little time for organization besides recording which could be a whole multitude of different segments for sure and uh yeah so keep an eye on things maybe we'll put out requests for people to see if we want to join them you never know just pay attention to our stuff and if if at the very least send us a voicemail send us an email send us some social media stuff so that we have stuff to read on the show and celebrate and get your opinions and thoughts and memories down on tape for our 10th anniversary extravaganza All right, guys. We'll talk to you later. Good night, everybody. Good night.
Right. Samuels definitely personified fate. In Samuels' writing, fate is immovable, like a mountain. It stands where man passes away. Fate never changes. All right, so... Hello, everyone. This is Mark from the Lantern Cast. I kind of wanted to begin with that quote, the uh, fate is immovable like a mountain. It stands where man passes away. Fate never changes. I kind of figured that'd be appropriate since we're talking about Halloween in general, which is a franchise which obviously, even before this movie, we know there's a lot of beats that keep constantly repeating itself. So I think that quote that quote is a good quote by itself, and depending on how one views fate, it might actually echo every indi- you know not every but it may echo an individual's view on fate if you really believe that everything is set in stone which i think we've talked about on the show but certainly from a halloween perspective it actually is appropriate since we know there are major things that seem inevitable and that so that leads us to the halloween 2018 trying to make this relatively quick uh review uh ideally again ideally like i said this before that you may this may not see the light of day because uh, Ryan Daly from Fire and Water and I are supposed to do a, a we were well we had talked about doing a review based on when he got to see the movie so we if we do that then of course this no one will ever hear this and if not uh well this will then you're listening to it now so you kind of get the point so at first I went into this movie I'm a huge Halloween fan let's say that right off the bat I went into this movie trying to temper my expectations this was even before, you know, I got a lot of the spoilers, which, to be fair, in all honesty, this was a harder movie than you would think, considering it premiered, like, in September at the Toronto International Film Festival. This was a tougher movie to get spoilers on for a long time, that it was, like, one lonely review that came out that actually listed the spoilers, and then it took a while before another spoiler review came out, which essentially helped confirm everything that was in the first one. <coughs> But I still went in with low expectations. I tried to as much as I would, which is tough when you're looking forward to a movie. When we did our movie preview episode in the beginning of the year, uh, this Halloween was definitely on it for me. So it was going to be really, really, really hard to not look forward to this movie. And thus it, it influenced my expectation level. But I went in. I tried to temper it. Uh, I really was looking for a few basic things. I wanted this movie to feel like it was a continuation, a natural continuation or extension of the original movie, based on the premise that they were going with in which all the other Halloween sequels did not take place. And in case you didn't figure this out or there wasn't a big enough disclaimer on this, yes, there's going to be spoilers throughout this this discussion. <clears throat> so since none of the other... None of the other sequels were in this, you know, this alternate timeline they took place. Basically, this had to feel like it was natural. The characters were the same exact, going through some changes, but it, they just felt like, yes, this is believable that this was the same character. It moved, it acted, they behaved the same way they did in, in the 19, you know, enough to believe it was a natural extension of the 1978 original. And. I think Michael Myers looked pretty good. The James Jude Courtney's version of this version of his vision and his interpretation of the shape. I think for the most part, I don't want to say it was seamless because I don't think anyone can be as good as Nick Castle was. Nick Castle brought something to it even without trying. That's never going to be captured again. But but the mask being as close as you could get to the original mask that was used in Halloween and Halloween 2. 
and the movements of James Jude Courtney, I would definitely say yes. I'd say Michael Myers, for the most part, seemed to me, I could believe this was the same character 40 years later. Laurie Strode's into tougher one because, simply because we know her character has been altered so much that I guess it's almost like a reverse litmus test. You have to see whether you can see elements of the original Laurie Strode in her. And I guess there are a little bit you can see that. But by just by definition of what they were doing with this, making her more Sarah Connor, you were just not going to get a lot of that. But So while on the character level, I think they, they mostly succeeded. I definitely... <clears throat> this movie does not come anywhere close to the original. And I, again, it's kind of like a Captain Obvious statement because I don't think any any movie could. No movie is perfect, and there are some plot points in it, like in any movie that you kind of look at, especially the, the more times you see it and go, that's kind of interesting, or that was kind of weird. How, how, how do they explain this? But overall, that movie, much like Jaws to me and a bunch of other movies, is like, it's, there's, you really can't, there's no point trying to do better with the material because you really can't. Uh, so it so on the one basic level it did fail because it did not make me it didn't make me think that it didn't blow Halloween 2 the original Halloween 2 out of the water and that would have been the way it would have naturally succeeded for me if I had seen this movie and said yes I would say hands down this is the no, no doubt about it this is the best Halloween sequel I wouldn't say that I don't think that's true it might be the other than Nick Castle in Halloween and Dick Warlock in Halloween 2, it might be the best interpretation of Michael Myers, other than, you know, the you know the first two movies. But but there are things in this movie that... that the, the, the positives are they, 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 they do a lot of thr- callbacks to the original. Sometimes they reverse them. Sometimes it's just, you know, just little ha-ha-ha moments and not related to the actual humor in this movie, which there's a lot of and I'll talk about too. But there's a lot of callbacks, a lot of Easter eggs, as probably everybody knows now, not just to the original Halloween, but to many, to almost all the sequels. If you look at it, there's things in there that can be applicable, even including Halloween 3 and a bunch, a bunch of other things. So I think that I think that works, but it, but it didn't really feel as Halloweeny, let's say, as the first, as the first one does. And that's again, I think, I think that's an impossible challenge. So that's, so I try to take that into consideration. Um, I had some of the, a lot of the characters are, are kind of pointless, which is true in, in, in horror movies in general, we know that's the case. Most characters exist in horror movies just to die, so that's not really surprising. Most of the male characters in this movie, so I'm not sure if it was on purpose or not, I'm not going to go heavy into analyzing this and say it was done on purpose, that every character has to be it. Has to, every male character has to be pointless or an idiot, because I don't think that's really true. Because I actually, even though I know uh, Will Patton's what Hawkins has gotten a lot of, a lot of criticism for being like useless, and some people, not useless, but some people said, oh, he's the dumbest cop of all time. I really didn't get that vibe. Could he, have, could he have done things better? Yes, but it's a horror movie. A lot. That's part of the, which is another part of the problem, is that a lot of people do stupid things in this movie, which we know is it's so traditional, traditional in a, a horror movie and it's gotten to the point thanks to Scream and every and all those movies and that audience audiences I think in general are a lot less forgiving and accepting of that now that it was almost like a given but kind of like how back back in the day in a horror movie that it was, it was a given that if a woman was running away she'd have to tr- she'd have to trip and fall and people while that, 
it's a little less understand. People are less understanding of that now because it's just a trope. It's just convenient. It's not. It doesn't make a lot of sense. People conveniently forget to run. So it's people do stupid things. They go explore things that they shouldn't explore, which kind of reminds me in a way. I believe it was Alan B. McElroy who wrote Halloween Four, and I think one of the things that he said, if I remember correctly, was that what they tried to do in Halloween Four, <coughs> excuse me, was kind of like do the opposite, which is where when people do stupid things and and die and they die, it's kind of not necessarily always hard to feel sorry for them, but it's it's hard, it takes you out of the story. But when people do really smart things and they do the make the intelligent decision, and people still keep dying, then that kind of makes it a, you know it, that makes it scarier and makes it a better movie. Well, we don't get a lot of that in this movie. We get a lot of people doing stupid things, and seemingly again, if you want to looking at the at the the modern take on things and the way we people look at horror movies and the experience we have as a, as an audience, as a society, we all know horror movies so much that even in a world of Halloween where Michael Myers was real, they still would have seen other horror movies, so they should know the tropes. So you just there's some things that people just don't, they shouldn't be doing. And we get we do get some instances, especially like with the character of Ray, who is uh, Karen Strode's husband, who is he is really useless in this movie. And pe- people just, you know, people do dumb things the way the, fa- you know, the way the father, the way the father gets out of the, gets out of the truck to when they find the crashed bus and things like that. It just, it's, I don't know. That's a horror movie. You kind of expect people to do stupid things after, you know, but it's still, it gets old. And when you're trying to make a movie, which is, is supposed to be a little cut above the rest, no pun intended, it kind of makes it shakier. So I... I mean, I liked, I liked Allison. I liked Laurie's granddaughter. She was pretty cool. Hawkins was kind of an, he could have been a better character. They could have had more stuff for him to do. Maybe again, this move, the ending of this movie was changed, and some things were edited, and in um, there were reshoots, and so it's hard to know exactly what his original fate was, of whether he was supposed to die earlier, because there's scenes in the trailer which indicate that Michael Myers was coming around the corner to stab him, and that's another scene that's that's not in the movie, that's just not in the movie, the way you know it shows in the trailer. So because of that, it's hard to know whether that was one of the things that was changed, his role. But I would have liked his role to be... I would have liked for him to do some things differently, but I would have liked for him to have a, a bigger role in this movie maybe even survive because he has an interesting backstory because the backstory you get is that he was the first responder essentially to the Doyle house back in 1978 that after after Michael Myers took the plunge off the balcony even though you don't see any of this this is kind of all the stuff that you're told and it's implied that Loomis found him wherever he found him when he was still wounded and he was planning on quote-unquote killing him so we assume he reloaded and was going to shoot Michael Myers probably another six times but Hawkins was the first one on the scene, and he basically stopped Loomis from killing Michael Myers. Uh, so that's kind of Hawkins' claim to fame in, in, in the mythology. And, of course, in this movie, as it goes on, he pretty much, not surprisingly, regrets that decision. That he kind of realizes probably retroactively that probably at the end of the day he should have just let Dr. Loomis do what he wanted to do. But... At least Hawkins, along with Laurie, are like the only two that really, as soon as it becomes clear that you know Michael is unaccounted for after the bus crash, that he knows what's coming and he knows the the magnitude of what Michael Myers escaping on Halloween means. 
which is another from a plot point perspective here. I mean, it's another thing that makes you scratch your head because while yes, Michael wasn't being just moved himself, there were a whole all bunch of other inmates being moved out of Smith's Grove. Why in the world would they do it on Halloween or Halloween Eve, if you will, knowing that the guy you trans, the, probably the one dangerous guy on that bus, has already killed enough, you know, basically what I think six people. The five, I, the. I'm running through everybody in my head. No, maybe it's just maybe it's just five at that point, counting counting Judith, because he killed the the truck, the mechanic or the tr- truck the truck driver to get his overalls in the first movie, and he killed Bob and Linda and Annie. So maybe it's just a grand total of five. But the reality is, he already, he killed five people on two different Halloweens. So why in the world would you even take... Of all days, you should not be moving him anywhere out of the institution. Especially when you know that, yes, it's 40 years later, but there was a 15-year gap before he escaped the first time. So you can't just assume, oh, that switch is flipped off completely. <clears throat> Going along with that flip, this switch being flipped off and on, we have a character introduced, which is Michael Myers' new doctor, which is Dr. Sartain, which is kind of a... That's a really hit or miss character. It's an it's interesting from the perspective of based again based on expectation. You know, there's a psychiatrist take in charge of Michael Myers, so you naturally assume, oh, he's like he's Doctor Loomis, and actually Laurie even throws in a, kind of like a, a small little joke, and the audience is going to take it that way when she first meets Sartain and she goes, oh, you're the new you're the new Loomis. So anybody we have a we know what a psychiatrist of Michael Myers is supposed to imply to us based on the history of the franchise, including the movies that are not canon in this in this timeline. But pretty much, we know what that's supposed to mean. It's supposed to be a Dr. Loomis-like character. And that expectation gets added because we find out that Sartain was a student of Dr. Loomis. And once Dr. Loomis died, he requested, as in Sartain requested, to have Michael Myers as his patient. What's kind of interesting is there's nothing, and of course there's no, no way of knowing this, but there's nothing that indicates that Sartain was grooming, was groomed by Dr. Loomis to take over Michael Myers, or that Loomis would have wanted him to. It kind of, in a way, a weird tangent reminded me like the, uh, like an Obi-Wan Anakin kind of relationship, and if we, we had, if we didn't know what Anakin was going to become, and we had met Anakin, let's say, almost like how we met Dooku, that he was already a Jedi Knight. And we found out, oh, he, you know, Obi-Wan was my teacher. I, I was an apprentice of his back in the day. And, that you would naturally think, oh, not only would must Anakin be a really good Jedi if Obi-Wan trained him, but you would think he's a good person just because of who his master was or who his teacher was. So I think they play kind of on that kind of expect, that kind of relationship and our expectations thereof. Because Sartain, as we find out, is nothing like Dr. Loomis. And even before we get the twist with Sartain in the movie, we, it's already established that, that Sartain views... I mean, it gets clarified in that moment when he turns. But it's already hinted at throughout, let's just say hinted at throughout, that Sartain views Michael Myers differently. Dr. Loomis views him... We know how Dr. Loomis always viewed Michael Myers, and in this movie they reinforce it. That pretty much the only thing Michael, the only thing that Dr. Loomis thinks, the only treatment or the only course of action that he wants from Michael is based pretty much to kill him. That he would like Michael Myers to be just killed. And whenever Michael Myers does die, he absolutely just wants the uh, 
He, the minute that heart starts stops beating, he wants the body cremated. He wants him burned to a crisp. He wants there to be no nothing, you know, no uh, nothing left of Michael Myers at all. So his take is pretty clear. Like going back to how we viewed it originally, that Michael Myers is pure evil. That there's nothing other than that. He is pure evil. Now Sartain views it differently. He views him more as a predator, as a wild animal, and it makes a little bit of sense because I, I think this time and I there's no proof of this. This is just speculation on my part that maybe the way Michael Myers was apprehended because it's left so up in the air in this movie. And I do think, while beginning the movie this way would have been a mistake, having a flashback, even in the most rudimentary sense, like almost going into like uh, Hawkins' mind, his minds during the times when he's talking about his ties to 1978, going into his mind, having a pseudo-flashback of him coming upon Dr. Loomis, and just something like that would have been beneficial. But be, but because of how Michael Myers, basically, we, we are led to believe, was captured in 1978, which was after he was wounded by Dr. Loomis, and Loomis found him, and Hawkins got, you know, Hawkins got involved uh before Loomis could basically shoot him or kill, or try to quote unquote kill him, the reality is, I thought that's maybe Sartain. This may reinforce or may have helped establish in Sartain's mind why Michael Myers is not a na- supernatural, a force of evil, or like a force of nature, but he's more like an animal because because Michael Myers basically quote unquote allowed himself to be t- put taken into captivity. Instead of just continuing on doing what he would do, even if he was outnumbered or even if he knew he was going to get shot a gazillion times, the fact that Michael Myers basically, quote-unquote, allowed himself to be taken into custody, that might have helped ingrain in Sartain, but um bum the idea that Michael Myers was not was still was really human and he still functioned as a human being or as a living creature because of the fact that he had self-preservation instincts that he may that, that may have been a conscious choice on his part because he knew he was not getting away and he knew he wasn't immortal so that was pretty much the only decision left so i i can i could almost kind of see why he would view it why he would view it like that but it's but it's not as we know, that's not Michael Myers. Michael Myers is evil. Michael Myers, is that's exactly what he is. So the twist with Sartain comes on late, later on when basically we find out that he's the one who helped engineer Michael Myers' escape. He's the one who also wanted the podcasters to come in the beginning of the movie to kind of rile Michael up. But he's the one who helped Michael Myers escape, and he's the one who wanted, basically, he wanted to see Michael Myers, quote-unquote, in his natural environment. He wanted to see Michael Myers in, in the wild. Plus, he wanted to see what would happen when Michael Myers and Laurie were together. So his, his plan was to basically get those two characters together, and that's why he's also like a plot device in this movie, because even though he tur- his, his turn comes right around the, you know, towards the end, of the end of the second act, beginning of the third act, he's pretty much done away with relatively quickly. You know, Michael pretty much takes him out shortly thereafter. But Sartain does serve a purpose because he unfortunately kills Hawkins when Hawkins hits him with his car and he's about to go out and shoot him, kind of what just what Loomis was would have done or was wanted to do in 78. Sartain interferes to prevent that from happening because he wants to take Michael to Laurie and set up the final confrontation in the movie. 
So, related to that, I do think that the ending, the, the, fi- the final battle with Laurie and Michael is not, I think it's a lot shorter than it could have been. And maybe a lot shorter than it should have been. I think it would have been, it didn't, it didn't, it seemed a little, forced is a strong word, but it seemed, it was, everything, once we got to that point, it all happened too quickly. And there wasn't enough meat on the bone, I think, there. Plus, as I, as I know I kind of speculated when we first saw the trailer, like, why would Michael be stalking Laurie to begin with if, you know, there was no blood relation between the two, once since, since this sequel throws out the brother-sister relationship? And one of the speculations was that it was discussed. I think actually it was Ryan and I who discussed it. We just never really put that out as a clip. We should have done that. That was my fault. That... One of the things we both kind of speculated was maybe he's really not after Lori at all, and basically their paths just crossed, and then that becomes something different. And as it turns out, that really is essentially the case here, that Michael is not stalking Lori throughout this movie, that Sartain kind of like puts, you know, kind of puts them in proximity enough where then they end up almost having to go toe-to-toe. But Michael is not, on, there's nothing to indicate that Michael is after Lori at all. He's just doing what... The, the whole Geico thing. It's like, if you're Michael Myers, you go to Haddonfield and kill people because that's what you do. And that's pretty much what he does as he's working his way through. In fact, you know, uh, earlier in the, when Laurie, like the scene in the trailer when Laurie sees him in the, in the window when actually it's just a reflection from a mirror and she takes a shot at him, when he leaves, when he, when he leaves the uh, house that he's in at the, at that time and then, Hawkins catches him like out of the corner of his eye and he, and he goes to uh, try to stop him. When Michael goes outside, Laurie chases after him and Laurie actually gets a shot off and uh, hits, hits, him in the, hits him in the shoulder, I believe. Uh, but Michael just pretty much goes about and, and is, he's, doing, he's doing his thing. He's not going after Laurie. So at least that makes sense because it really would make no sense for him to really go after Laurie in particular. Uh, it really wouldn't. I mean, it, because there was no reason. Because because this movie establishes she was that he, she was picked for purely at random in the first movie. It was wrong place at the wrong time. She didn't drop the keys off at the Myers house in the morning. Things would have been different. That's what this movie implies. So, I think the confrontation between Laurie and Michael is not really as as interesting or cool as it could have been. There is a nice scene with you know Michael throwing Laurie off the balcony, which and then looking down and Laurie's gone, which obviously mirrors the ending of the original movie. I think that would have been a good moment to do the head tilt. I don't think we really got the head tilt. If we did, we certainly didn't get a full head tilt of Michael looking over the looking over the balcony and tilting his head the way he does, realizing Laurie's gone. Uh, the ending, the ending of the movie. Uh, I think. The, it's it's disappointing but not surprising. It's disappointing because at first you're kind of led to believe that this whole the whole purpose of this is to set up a final confrontation between Michael and Laurie, but they kind of you know that kind of spit the bit to begin with because because we know that they had been talking about a sequel to this movie for you know for a long time, you know that. It was just being discussed, almost like it was a, a formality. If this movie made money, that there was going to be a sequel. And the movie ends. They tra- L- Laurie traps Michael in the basement. 
uh, basically, we find out that the you know the panic room, the safe room that we're led to believe, yeah, and this was done relatively cleverly, that the panic room really isn't a panic room or a safety room. It basically was designed to be a cage or a trap for Michael. That the idea was not that they were going to be safe in there. The idea was to eventually get Michael down there and trap him there. So then it's, it's booby trapped with gas. Uh, they really lower, you know, they they open up the valves and then they set they basically set the entire house on fire. So it kind of mirrors the the ending of Halloween too uh, on that level. It just it just does. Uh, so the whole house pretty much goes up in flames. We when they're leaving the house when they first start the fire, the way Michael's looking up at Laurie especially is kind of cool. It's just like he's he's completely Michael Myers like he's emotionless. He's not he's not, not even giving you a head tilt. He's just kind of staring. It's kind of a hint of where the ending is going because of the fact that you there's a scene that comes back and cuts to the basement when it's on fire and you don't see Michael Myers anymore, and there was no natural path that you could see for him to get out. But at the end of the movie, if you stay all the way to the credits, you'll hear Michael Myers breathing, kind of like shortly after Michael Myers went off the balcony in the original movie, after you know Loomis looked out and then he then he raised his head his eyes and started looking up to the sky. That you kind of hear Michael Myers breathing, and it cuts to all the different scenes where Michael Myers, the places he had been throughout the movie. You don't you don't get a cutback because again this is after the credits. But you do hear the breathing, which of course absolutely implies that you know Michael Myers is alive. Uh, so that's the way the movie ends. The humor in the movie, it's okay. I think there's a little too much of it, even though there's things that make you laugh. I do agree with some of the criticisms that it kind of takes you out of the moment, and sometimes it's a fine line that when things go on too long, it can at least temporarily change the tone of the movie. Like everybody talks about, I think, Vicky and Julian. Uh, when Vicky's babysitting Julian, Julian is cute and Julian is really funny. But some of the stuff is it does kind of take you out of the scariness of the moment. Another criticism, which a lot of people haven't ta- – I, I haven't seen in a lot of reviews or a lot of, you know – just overall discussions of this movie is the fact that besides the fact that once again we get the requisite and this may not have been always by design because there was editing in this movie and after these the original test screenings but much which something that's becoming like par for the course these days that there are scenes in the trailer that are not in the movie and the big negative was and I think Ryan and I talked about this too when we did the trailer amongst ourselves that he was afraid more than I was and he turned out to be right that he was afraid that pretty much they were showing too much in the trailers and obviously after the trailers we saw some of the um, the clips and the snippets and I would say that that's absolutely the case that we saw probably with maybe the exception of one scene between the trailers and all the little featurettes that came out in the last week we probably saw maybe one scene there was something one scene that was held back other than that you pretty much see every a part of every single scene that the masked michael myers is in throughout the movie and they they just gave away too much like that scene in the closet when you know when vicky checks the closet when julian says she he sees somebody it's kind of hard to get to be surprised or scared or even any have any kind of real reaction at all about that scene because we've already seen it in the trailer that she opens the door and he's got the knife so we know michael myers is in the closet now yes they could have edited it out 
But the expectation was he was in the closet because we we've seen that scene. Uh, so I think that I think I think that was a negative. And I think overall, on the basic level, which is kind of important for horror movies, clearly, was it scary? I don't think it was scary. There wasn't. I mean, some of it was brutal. So you might have been shocked with how brutal Michael Myers was, which I think makes sense. Not just because oh, you have to modernize. I don't mean just from a. I I believe throwing that excuse out, just looking from a character perspective, that I can believe Michael Myers would kind of be randomly killing people in a lot more brutal fashion, maybe than even he did in the original, because he's been he's got a lot of this pent up anger. He's been locked in for forty years, and you know this may literally be his last chance to do anything about it, so he's out. They do make some interesting choices in this movie because they actually, well, they 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 have him spare the baby he could kill. He actually does kill a child uh, shortly after the bus crash, which is something that Michael Myers has never done before. Uh, certainly, the adult Michael Myers has never done, and I'm not counting the trash Rob Zombie version in which he basically killed his bully, and even that would be different. He actually killed a kid who was older than him, and at least you could say there was some. Uh, "Quote unquote justification for what for that maybe, uh, but the reality is Michael Myers, as the Michael Myers that we know, didn't randomly go by and just kill kids. So, but I don't think the movie was scary. I think there were sort of a few jump scares that had basically nothing to do with Michael Myers, and that made you jump based on expectation a little bit. But other than that, I don't think the movie was particularly scary. I so I want to." I want to wrap this up. The music, everybody talks about the soundtrack of John Carpenter and his son's work on the soundtrack. It was good. I don't, again, I think some people are, because maybe because it's John Carpenter, are blowing it out of a proportion a little bit. I think there are some cool tracks to it. As of now, and I've listened to it a couple of times, I don't know if there's any like new track that makes me think, oh, this is as memorable as a bunch of different tracks that were in the original. Halloween soundtrack, but maybe, but maybe over time, but maybe over time, uh, it'll grow on me because I'm ke- I keep listening to it. So I think it's really good. I think it's really good because it's you know it is John Carpenter. So I think a lot of people. I mean, I, I want to modify it. I think it's good. I don't think it's really good. I think it's good, and it's John Carpenter, and he do- always does a really really good job overall with soundtrack. So I think. On that level, that might be why people are kind of like going gaga over this a little bit more than they should. But I'm not gonna. But I don't have a lot. I can't critique it too much. I think overall the soundtrack is good. I enjoy it. I always like listening to John Carpenter's soundtrack. So I'm not. If somebody happens to say, "Oh, I love this soundtrack. It's his best ever," I'm not gonna critique. I'm not gonna say, "Oh no, you're." I'm not gonna critique that. I mean, that's a personal choice on that level, and I don't think that. That's just nitpicking. But I, as far as where I would rank this. In, in the Halloween franchise, I think if you base on masks alone, I would say probably it's the third best one. If you based on overall uh, Michael Myers' behavior and making it seem Michael Myers-like, it's probably the third best. But if you're looking at the as an overall movie in the Halloween series, that becomes shakier for me because I don't because I don't think it's better than Halloween. I probably it doesn't replace Halloween two to me as is the definitive sequel. 
and I probably would say H2O and Halloween 4, I would still think are better than this movie. So that's pretty much it. I'm going to wrap this up now. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Thanks for listening to my rambling. And if you're a Halloween fan, you probably want to see this movie. So while I was a little disappointed in it, if you are a fan, I certainly think you should see it. So I would recommend seeing it on that level. But if I had to put it to a vote, whether I gave it thumbs up or thumbs down, I would give it a, a slight thumbs down. But that's pretty much is it. This is Mark and from the Lantern Cast, and I will talk to you later.